Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. Also, we pray it acts as an encouragement for you today. Everyone has a story to tell. This Christmas season, we're going to look at different perspectives of people from the Bible and the story they tell of Jesus' birth. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. My name is Jeff and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We are so glad that you've gathered with us here this morning. If you're watching us online, we want to welcome you as well. And if you're watching us from the Cross Point Center, we want to extend a special welcome to you as well this morning. Now, as we have gathered together over the past, uh, this past week, um, we recognize that we are in the midst of this series called A Story to Tell. It's, it's a story to tell about how God has worked in announcing the birth of Jesus and the people through whom he has announced that story. The, the characters that are surrounding uh, the, the, the coming and the arrival of Jesus on the scene. And so this morning, we're going to continue our series in that manner. But before we do, I just want us to stop for a moment, and I want us to pray and ask God to work in our lives uh, here in the next few moments. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather this morning. And we pray that as we do, we pray that as we hear your word, that your spirit would work in us to transform and to change us. Would you open our eyes to see the truth of your word and that you would change us as we have gathered. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. By show of hands, how many of you always have, have a friend who always has a story to tell? How many of you have a friend that always has a story to tell? Yeah, a few of you guys have a story to tell. Now, whenever this friend gets started, you know that sometimes those stories might be a wee bit embellished, mightn't they? They might be a little bit bigger fish than they actually caught or, or a bigger, bit bigger deer than they actually shot or whatever the case may be. But whenever they start on these stories, you sometimes are like, ah, I, don't, I don't know about this story. And typically, those friends of yours are like my friends. Those stories start with, you'll never believe what happened to me. Am I right? That's how those stories typically begin. And it's at that point that maybe you roll your eyes or maybe you shake your head and, and you just know, oh, I'm in for a good one. I am in for a good one today. Now, this morning, as uh, we open God's Word in just a few moments, we're going to be looking at a story like that. But I was thinking about this in relation to my life, and I was thinking, you know, in 25 years, whenever I'm sitting on the floor with my grandkids, Lord willing, uh, in that day, there's going to be a story like that to tell. And it's going to be about a particular year that I experienced in my lifetime, and, and I'll be sitting there and I'll say, Kids, you'll never believe what happened to me in 2020. You're never going to believe some of these things. And, and, and we would start, and I would say it started off pretty normal. The year seemed like things were going to go well. And then we started having some crazy things happening like wildfires. There were wildfires that were burning up large portions of whole continents like Australia. And they were also burning in large states like California, large Masses of land were being burned on a regular basis with these wildfires. And then we heard about this virus called COVID-19. And this virus started to spread. And, and over the course of, of time, it shut down the whole world. 
It seemed like the whole world was shut down. You couldn't travel from country to country. It was challenging to travel from state to state without having a a note from your doctor to tell you why you were coming to the state. It really defined at least nine months of our life. But not only did it get involved with us, but the monkeys got in on the action too. I don't know if you guys remember this, but the monkeys started stealing COVID samples and people were freaking out about the monkeys taking the the COVID and what they were going to do with them and all this stuff. But that's not all. Then we had this situation with murder hornets. You guys remember the reports of murder hornets that were going to come and take over the world and swarm in the United States and we were all in danger because of the murder hornets? And then you'll remember as we were home and watching the news, we became more and more aware of the civil injustices and racial injustices that, that were uh, in, in, our, in our country. We remember names like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And we recognize even in those times that there was mass unrest. Protests were taking place on a regular basis. And, and on our televisions, we saw large cities being almost burned to the ground. But that's not all. The Olympics were canceled. They canceled the Olympics. And not just the Olympics, but literally every major professional and collegiate sport that we had were in some way affected in a significant way. Whether the season was canceled, whether it was postponed, whether they played in stadiums with no fans, it was consistently and significantly altered. But that's not all. Then we had these locust swarms in Africa and Asia. They were were biblical proportions where people were being infested and, 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 and attacked by these swarms of locusts. But that's not all. 21 million people lost their jobs. Employment was going through, unemployment was going through the roof. But that's not all, kids. Hurricanes. We had more hurricanes this year that were named than at any time in history. But that's not all. Then we had the 2020 election. And, and this time, it's 2045 when I'm talking to my grandkids, and I'll say, I still don't know who won. <laughs> but there's so much that's gone on with the election, so many name callings and so much unrest and so much challenge with that. But that's not all. Then we heard reports out of Denmark that there were zombie minks. Now, there weren't really zombie minks, but there were these minks that had been invested with COVID, and they started, after they were put into the grave, they started coming out of the ground, and people were like, ah, zombies, minks. (laughs) Now, as we open God's word today, (laughs) we're going to be confronted with the you'll never believe this kind of story. You'll never believe this kind of story, and And as we open, I want us to set just in our minds, as we open God's word, just a reminder for us that even though this is a you'll never believe this kind of story, Luke wants us to understand something significant about the reality of the story. So if you open in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, but that's not going to be the main part of our passage or our text this morning, but I want us to start here because I think it helps us as we think about what is going to come. Luke chapter 1, 
verses one through four. This is what Luke writes. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as though who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, as you've gathered here with us this morning, whether you're online or whether you're here with us uh, live in person, maybe you wonder in your own mind, can I really believe these accounts? These stories are so phenomenal. Can I really believe them? Can I really trust that these things are true? Now, we've titled this series, A Story to Tell, but we must remember that this is not a fairy tale story. Luke wants his readers from the very beginning of his account to know that these are true events. There is an important reality for us to remember because these can seem hard to believe. And as Luke writes these things with meticulous care and detail, he is helping us to see the credibility and validity of the claims that he makes. This First few verses serve as a basis for us of the even greater, you'll never believe this kind of moments that will occur throughout the gospel of Luke. Now, if you pay a lot of attention in our culture, you know that the culture is huge on something called fact checking, aren't they? Every, every fact has to be checked. And here Luke is essentially saying, I want you to check my facts. I want you to check my account and my record so that you know what I'm saying is true. That's helpful for us today as we've gathered because what we see in the next few verses is a hard to believe kind of story. It's a you'll never believe this kind of moment. And so as Luke starts, he's going to talk about this from very historically verifiable information. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 25. We're going to meet a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And uh, the first thing that I want us to know about their story to tell is this. Their story is introduced within the midst of an unlikely situation. Their story is introduced to us, the readers, in the midst of an unlikely situation. Now, what, is, what are some of the reasons that this is an unlikely situation? Well, the first thing is that the culture was unusually dark. We see that in verse 5a. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now for us, we read over that, sometimes we're just accustomed to blowing right through passages like this and saying, okay, there was a king named Herod, he was in Judea. But for the reader, this is important information. Remember, Luke doesn't just waste ink on the page. He uses every, every word and every sentence in a very meticulous and careful way. And he's drawing our attention to the fact that in these days, Israel was very dark. Just as he mentions this name, Herod, king of Judea. Why is this the case? Because we know that Herod was a tyrant. Herod was, was a very difficult king. He was cruel. He was suspicious of everybody. He was vindictive in his personality and his actions towards others. He was detested by his subjects. 
He was hated by the culture at large for his acts of cruelty. This is the same Herod, if we look through history, who is responsible for the murder of one of his wives, two of his sons, and other members of his family because he was fearful that they were conspiring against him to try and overthrow him. This is the same Herod who, if we look in the gospel of Matthew and the the account that Matthew gives, is responsible for sending out an army to slaughter all of the boys that were two years old and younger. This This is that same Herod. Not only is it dark in this way, one of the writers that I looked at said that this saying, this understanding of who Herod is, is equivalent to saying in the darkest and most evil days that man can remember that this story takes place. So not only were there moral darkness, but there was spiritual darkness. If we remember where we are in redemptive history, it's been nearly 400 years since God has said anything through any prophet, through anybody. God has not communicated to Israel for nearly 400 years. Nearly 400 years, God has not said anything. He has been silent. So it's spiritually dark, and it's morally dark. It's an unusually dark culture. Not only that, we see this, that the characters are unimpressively ordinary. They're unimpressively ordinary. We see this uh, as we continue reading. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, as we move on in this story, we meet Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a common man. He's a priest, but he's common. You see, he's one of the 18,000 or so priests of the day. And uh, even though he is of the line of Aaron, we recognize that, that he is just a priest, one of the 18,000 of them. And, and in one translation, the writer says, a certain priest. Now, if you or I were being introduced in a biblical story, and we we're a priest, we might want it to say something like a brilliant priest, right? a smart priest, a wise priest. But a certain priest really helps us understand that he was just a common priest. And his wife, Elizabeth, she was a daughter of Aaron, which means that she was part of the priestly family. She, her, her dad was probably a priest. Her, her brothers were priests. Her grandfather was a priest. So you have a priest and the daughter of a priest that are married. And, and this is an encouragement. They're, uh, it's a blessing for them, but they are a common priestly family. Not only do we see that they uh, were unimpressive in who they were, but there's there's just a, an ordinariness about their living. They lived in a way that sought to honor God. From Luke's account, we see a legacy of godliness. They're described as righteous and blameless. They were blameless. That doesn't mean that they were sinless. It means that they sought to uphold and obey the word of God. And these are kind of the people that you probably want to hang around with. They're the kind of people that would encourage you in your spiritual walk. But even in their life, there is a huge problem. There's a huge problem. And we see this in the fact that the characters are enduring an unchanging trial. Verse 7 says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren 
and both were advanced in years. Even in the midst of their faithfulness, they were enduring what would be understandably then and today one of the most significant trials, one of the significant and difficult situations that anyone could imagine. She wasn't able to have children. And in the Jewish culture, many Jews believe that if you were cursed by God, he would, he would make that a sign by keeping you from having children. But we know that that's not the case in their lives because we've already seen from Luke's account that they were godly, that they were faithful. So we know this is not a curse. And, and the, the mention of their age helps us to understand that they were probably at least 60 years old, if not older. And so the, the prospect of being able to have children has gone. It's in the past. It's no longer something that they can look forward to or expect, at least not in a natural outworking of life. Now I want us to pause just for a moment. Because we see this couple, and their testimony was that of faithfulness. And it's tempting for us, I think, whenever things are difficult, whenever circumstances in our lives are not what we want them to be, to keep God at an arm's length. To say, God, you're not doing what I want you to do. This, this life, this situation is difficult. And we keep him at arm's length rather than doing what we see Zechariah and Elizabeth doing. Rather than run from God and keep him at an arm's length, they run to God. They continue to pursue him. They continue to obey his words because they knew that the disappointments and the situations in their lives did not determine the existence or working of God in this world. They recognized that even though they were going through difficult times, it didn't mean that God had ceased to, to continue working in their lives and they continued to pursue him. Now, as we start this story, seven verses in, I'm sure that you're thinking, wow, this is going to be a pretty, this is going to be a non-thriller. Like, what, what do we got? we got? We don't have things that seem to make for a great story. We have, uh, by all accounts, a story that should basically end after this, except for Elizabeth and Zechariah right off into the sunset. They spend their golden years being a blessing to those around them, encouraging them in their walk with the Lord, pursuing God together. Situations, though, like this, that seem impossible, are perfect grounds for God to do fantastic works. They're perfect grounds for God to do things that we could never imagine possible. You see, their story is just getting started. And, and as we continue on, we start to see the plot starting to thicken as we continue on in their story. Verse 8 says this, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, we already know that Zechariah was a priest. He wasn't the only priest. We've already said that there were 18,000 priests and there were 24 divisions of priests, so 24 groups of them. And each year, they only got to serve in this temple twice a year for a week at a time. Now, this is, uh, th this is gonna talk to us about the improbability of this. Since there were so many priests and since there were so few opportunities, 
entering the holy place to clean the altar of incense and then to offer new incense was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Talk about improbability. Talk about difficult circumstances. It's so improbable that this priest would be at this point in this time. Once in a lifetime opportunity. It would be said that this was probably the greatest moment in Zechariah's life. Now, as we look at this from a human perspective, we might say, man, that was a lucky draw. He rolled the dice right on that one. But when we recognize that God is in control of all things, we recognize that this is not chance, nor is this fate. God is clearly in control of this event, and God was providentially, sovereignly directing and causing the lot to fall on Zechariah. Now, I know some of you guys are the kind of people that look at stories or watch movies and you try to figure out what's going to happen next before the movie continues on. And then you go and you try to ruin it for everybody that's watching it with you, don't you? You say, this is going to happen next. So for you guys that are like that, I want to give you the list to see if you can put together the pieces. Here are, here's our list so far. We have a darkness of the culture. We have the barrenness of the womb. We have the silence of God. And we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I bet you'll never guess what's going to happen next. We might look at this and say, nothing redemptive is going to happen. But then we have to remember that God is not confined by what we perceive as impossibilities. He's setting the stage to turn impossibility into possibility in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let's see how he does that. He does it through this. Their story unfolding with an unbelievable message. Their story unfolds with an unbelievable message. Let's read from verse 10 down through verse 17, where the writer says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit of, and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, as imagine the scene as Zechariah enters into the holy place to perform this, this service of offering incense, this once in a lifetime opportunity. Certainly, he's reverent. And he goes in with reverence and awe and understanding the weight of what he's going in to do. But I seriously doubt that he was expecting anything other than what his priest friends already told him was going to happen. All right, Zechariah, this is what you do. You go in. You uh, place the, the coals on the altar. Then you place the incense on the coals. The smoke goes up. You go out, you tell everybody about the blessing of Aaron on them, and then you go back to your daily life. But God 
pronounces in this a different plan. God, after 400 years of this act of worship being performed with no message, with no revelation, God breaks the silence. For 400 years, no prophet had spoken. All the prayers that had been uttered in this time seemed like they bounced off the ceiling and came right back down until this angel appears to this ordinary priest and offers this unbelievable message. Now, as we read this, Zechariah responds like most all of us probably would if we saw a huge, flaming, fiery angel standing in front of us. He was terrified. He was scared to death. And the angel, like we see throughout Scripture, doesn't say anything other than, don't be fearful. It's a command, stop fearing. And here, he utters the impossible. Now, the angel has not come like we see sometimes to announce judgment, but he comes to announce that Zechariah's prayer has been heard. Now, what prayer is he talking about? Zechariah is 60 plus, maybe 70 or 80. So the prayer for a child may have long since gone. Most likely what Zechariah is praying for is that Israel would be redeemed, that there would be salvation for Israel. Now, to be sure, as we think about this, because they are past those childbearing years, even though the next pronouncement is that she is going to have a son, it is most likely, again, that they're praying for the redemption of Israel. However, the reality is that in this declaration, both prayers are answered. One that has ceased to be prayed and one that is presently being prayed. Zechariah, praying for the redemption of Israel, never in a million years would have believed that that announcement, that that step in salvation history would come through a son, especially a son to him in his old age. It was impossible. It was astounding. And what do we learn about this son? What does is, what is God tell us? First, we learn that this son was given a name, not a name that Zechariah chose, a name that God chose. His name was John, which means the Lord is gracious. It's significant as we think about naming in the Bible, especially whenever God names a child. It's not just a name, but it's a message. It's a message that I am about to be gracious, and this John will be the one that begins to tell people about my coming. Not only that, his birth will bring great joy. It will bring joy to the parents, but also joy to those around we learn that he is the only person in the New Testament that is said to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. We learn that he is not to drink. Now, this is not necessarily a, an indication that he's going to be a Nazarite, but that he is being set apart for a specific purpose for God. We learn that he's going to be great before the Lord, and we learn that his life is going to lead to transformation in the nation. So, this angel tells Zechariah, not only are you going to have a son, your son is not going to be an ordinary son. Your son is the son that the prophets have proclaimed as the one who would pave the way for the Messiah. 
Notice what Malachi says in Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. We see the angel saying that your son, Zechariah, is going to be that child. He's going to be that forerunner. He's going to be that prophet. Where we'd expect joy and excitement. Can you imagine hearing this news as this man who has maybe longed for and hoped for a child? You could, you could expect maybe excitement and joy, gratitude, thanksgiving, maybe even weeping. But the best Zechariah could muster up was this. Mr. Angel, I'm old. And have you seen my wife? She's old. Maybe you've got the wrong Zechariah. Maybe it's the younger Zechariah that's going to come in next week that you meant to come and talk to. We see this as he continues. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I can almost see the angel going, how many times have you heard from an angel, Zechariah? This is significant. And the angel answers him. The angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and able to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The angel identifies himself as Gabriel, one of the only two angels that are identified in Scripture. And, and he, he says, I bring you good news. As, as John was going to be the forerunner, the way maker for Jesus, who is the ultimate good news. This is part and parcel of God's working salvation in the lives of people. And here we see a principle that this angel brings to Zechariah. When God speaks to us, we ought to listen. We ought to obey what he calls us to do because he expects us to do so. And we see even a principle. that There is some way in which discipline or judgment comes if we choose not to obey the word of God. I don't know if that's where you are today, where you hear and you hear and you hear and you choose to put it on silent. You hit the snooze button on the word of God rather than seeking to obey him. God calls us to trust him whenever he speaks through his word. Now, we continue on in, in this passage in verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah. Remember, there's these guys outside that are still praying. They're out there praying, and they have been praying for some time, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, what's going on with Zechariah? We sent him in. We haven't seen the smoke yet. I wonder what's going on. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. 
And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Isn't this a great blessing? We see God fulfilling his promises. He said, Zechariah, I'm going to give you a son. Zechariah, your wife, though she's old, is going to conceive. Zechariah, because you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute. You're not going to be able to speak. And we see all these things happening in his life. Here we even continue to see God's kindness and his mercy in giving this family a child. Where there is impossibility or where there was impossibility, now God brings possibility. Have you ever noticed that God seems to do his greatest work when the odds seem the least favorable? Maybe that's true in your life where you look around and you say, there's no way God's going to do anything in this situation. And miraculously, impossibly, something begins to change. God is working behind the scenes in ways in which you don't even know to bring about the accomplishment of his purposes in and through you. In a culture that was sitting in darkness, spiritually and morally, John's arrival shows that God is turning on the lights. He's turning on the lights. He's bringing light to vanquish the darkness. He's bringing the light of the world. He's bringing Jesus. Where there was silence, now God is speaking. Where there was barrenness, now there is life. And where there was darkness, now there is light. Friends, God is not hindered by the darkness of our culture. He is not hindered by the insignificance of our lives or the trials that we experience to accomplish his work. We see that clearly. The odds were stacked against Israel and God working in every conceivable way, and yet God breaks into history to accomplish his saving work. You see, the story that Zechariah and Elizabeth's life tells us this Christmas is that nothing is impossible with God. And as we leave today, as we move towards the end of our time together, there are two things that I want you to take home with you. Two truths that I want you to to remember as an anchor for you as you walk through your week that helps us as we think about Zechariah and Elizabeth's story to tell. First is this, God is sovereign over all. Now, sovereign simply means that absolutely nothing that happens in the universe is outside of God's influence and authority. We see this clearly in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see it in how God positioned them in history. We see it in how God directed their paths. We see it in the time in which it took for her to conceive. We see it in the faithfulness that they continued to express in their lives. We see that God is sovereign over history. We see that God is sovereign over nature. We see that God is sovereign over our lives and he is even sovereign over our suffering. In the midst of whatever we're going through, we can trust that God is sovereign. He uses the vessels he wants, the people he wants, in the time that he wants, in the way that he wants. And there is nothing in the universe that can stop him. There's nothing that can stay God's hand and say, you can't do this. He is sovereign. So today, 
you and I, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, live under the sovereign and watchful care of Almighty God. The second thing that we see is that God is at work in ways that are not immediately apparent to us. As I was reading this, I thought to myself, I wonder how often we miss God's answers to prayer because he isn't answering the exact way we want him to. Sometimes God answering no or wait to our prayers work in us, for us, and for the world something that him answering yes never would have accomplished. Believe that the things that God knows we need most are the things we are oftentimes least willing to ask him for. And we see in the life of Zechariah, we would much rather ask God to remove us from a trial than for God to strengthen our resolve to walk through it faithfully. It's only after looking back over what God accomplished to see all the ways in which God was molding us and shaping us and transforming us through his work and through the circumstances that he brought into our lives. I think about Justin and Katie. What a testimony of seeing the things that God is doing in the midst of their trial and not rejecting God's work, but saying, I know that God is teaching us something. I know that whatever he brings into our life, he's gonna strengthen and sustain us. And at the end, the things that we can't see down the road, God is using our story for his glory. He's using our story and the transformation that he's doing in the ways that we never would have expected it the day we said, I do. Now he's using that in our lives to share the transforming work of the gospel with other people. Now, as we've gathered here today, you might believe that your situation is beyond repair. You might believe it's impossible to remedy. You say, it's really unlikely that God's going to do anything with my life. It's shrouded in darkness or I'm just a nobody. You believe that there's no hope for change in the trial that you are enduring. You see, the story for Zechariah and Elizabeth is a story of God turning what seems impossible into things that is, are possible. But their story isn't just about a baby. Their story is about a savior. Because John the Baptist will be born. God is telling a bigger story about making what seems impossible possible. And we see that as he deals with us with the births of two boys, two impossible situations, one to a barren old woman, one birth to young virgin girl, both impossible by all accounts, which point us to an even greater reality that Nothing is impossible with God. Because as the story of that young virgin unfolds and Jesus is born, God tells another story that seems impossible to redeem. The story that God and man from Genesis chapter three onward have been enemies with one another. Man has tried every possible way to get back to God or to rule his life in his own way with no change and in an impossible way. It took God becoming a man in the person of Jesus, living a perfect life and dying in our place, taking our 
penalty and being raised on the third day for us to be welcomed into the presence of God. The reality of this great work, this saving work, opens wide the possibility for other situations in our lives to be transformed. You see, the resurrection of Jesus opens wide places. In places where we see seeming impossibility, where sin has cursed and destroyed and broken, turning those into opportunities for God to do his great works. And friends, if you're a believer here today, you're part of that story. You're part of that story of God redeeming what was broken and lost and transforming it to look more and more like Christ, to be more of a story about God's redeeming work. And today, if you are not a believer, if you've not trusted Jesus, God is inviting you today to become part of that story, to become part of that redeeming work because it is only in finding ourselves in the saving story of Jesus where the impossible is truly made possible, where there is true joy, where there is true faith and where true life can be found. This morning, if you're not a believer, God invites you to that. He says, come surrender your life to Jesus. He is the one who has come in the flesh to die for your sin and be raised on the third day so that you could have a relationship with me. Today is a day in which you can surrender to him in that and believe that Jesus is the savior. As we close our time together this morning, our band is gonna come out and lead us in a song that reminds us that God is sovereign over all, our circumstances, our joys, our trials. And he's seeking through that to change us, to be more and more like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who takes impossible situations and you turn them into possibilities. We pray that as we walk through this day and this week, that you would transform our hearts and our minds to love and trust Jesus even more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, how to get connected in your community, or if you just want to know more about Jesus, visit scottshill.org slash next steps for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories, whatever you want to do. Just make sure you tag us at Scotts Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.